Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, taking a scenic tour of Glenkirk. Um, well, let's put a pin in all things scenic tour and all things Glenkirk, because I think it's a, uh, you know, it's a good idea to discuss kind of what's been going on behind the scenes here at the show a little bit recently. Now, for those of you who don't know, we often record our episodes quite far in advance and sometimes out of sync just because of guest schedules and things like that. But this is actually the first time Cam and I have sat down microphone to microphone transatlantically to talk about a spy movie in over, I believe, six weeks at this point. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And Cam, why is that? Well, we went on vacation uh you were um going to las vegas to get married i was there as well and we were also there for the star trek convention uh so that was like what 10 days in las vegas and people 10 days in las vegas think about it (laughs) uh there wasn't much left in the tank after that but then i headed off to um california for a few days to attend you know quentin tarantino's movie theater the new beverly go to the uh, motion picture museum there as well as see the bond in motion exhibit um at the peterson car um uh, museum so yes it was a very busy two weeks and scott you know you were with me for the 10 days in vegas as well as settling into newlywed life yeah i mean it's great and i will just say it's uh much nicer to see you on a small screen in front of me on a laptop that i can close instead of in person (laughs) i can't just like shut your face down when I saw you in person, I just started screaming. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but yeah, fair play to Cam, and, and I do want to thank you on the air. You know, you you gave a, a speech at my wedding, mm. and you can be assured, folks, it was full of puns about spy movies, including a reference to at least uh, Condor Man, as far as I remember. <laughs> yeah, Condor Man, and um, I'm trying to think. I acknowledged some of the interviews we've done, like Jacqueline Bissett. Um, was was there like a was there a Remo Williams the first adventure thing in there? Because that would have been a gold joke if not. Oh my god! I mean, maybe it's just like no, I didn't have a Remo Williams reference, but maybe that would have been kind of like a dark note to set off on the wedding, where it's like <laughs> the adventure begins, and we know where the Remo Williams franchise went. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, and will remain most likely. Although for my birthday, you did actually give me the first Remo Williams book, which I've yet to read because I slept on the plane home. Uh, I imagine if I had started reading it, it would have even sent me into a faster sleep. So. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's like a hundred novels, so there's got to be something there, right? Hey, hey, there's like hundreds and hundreds of CSIs out there. Are they any good? Yes. The original CSI was awesome. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Cam's a big CSI cyber fan, I can tell. <laughs> and also, I actually gave you a, a Condor Man activity book. <laughs> Which I've yet to decipher. I've stared at it intently. I'll have to post some photos online because I can't quite figure out uh, how kids are supposed to navigate this book, <laughs> let alone adults. It's basically... How would you describe it to people? It's basically... um, Like a shading oh, book? A shading book of black and white images of Condor Man. But when you actually look at the pages... um it's just like a, like a swirl it's just like a swirl pattern over the whole page and you can't see anything at all it just reminds me of uh that those, those paintings that were really popular in the 90s i think elaine's employer on seinfeld has one in the office and stares at it for the whole episode uh, but uh yeah uh, i think everyone else gets it really straight away but he can't figure it out 
Yeah, that's right. The um, I can't remember what they're called. Like the 3D puzzles. Yeah, like you have to um, stare at or... it a certain way to get it to come through. Um, but I mean, I, I just want to take a quick aside at the start to say it's it's been a strange month and a half, but it's been great to see Cam again in person. And I think we'll be doing the same thing again next year. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting back to our regularly scheduled programming. That's right. And speaking of Cam, what are we talking about? We are tackling 1959's The 39 Steps, the remake of the Alfred Hitchcock 1935 classic. It's interesting that you say the remake of the Hitchcock classic and not the readaptation of the book. <laughs> it's because like almost all the plot elements came from the Hitchcock movie. Like if you read the synopsis on Wikipedia of the 39 Steps book, this has really no bearing on uh what this movie is like there's (laughs) this is the hitchcock movie yeah yeah, that's what i've read too i should read the book at some point actually because i really did enjoy the hitchcock version look you've got a hundred novels of the destroyer to get through (laughs) it will destroy me by the end (laughs) um but i suppose because this is actually a strange one because we started this sort of series throughout our show of doing a movie and then doing the remake a couple of months later when we first did the 39 steps back in our early months of Spy Hearts a couple of years ago now, we hadn't come up with the idea for that sort of programming. So we figure we're just going to do all the other 39 steps at some point throughout our life cycle, however we last. However, I can stand seeing Cam's face and he can stand hearing my voice every week. As long as you're not busy reading Destroyer novels, whatever time you can spare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll probably find me on a train immediately to uh, Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah like um I, I and it was interesting because like the 1970s version which i i haven't seen but is a little more well known or at least more publicly available than this 1959 version mm-hmm. um i hope all of you were able to find uh this version it is on youtube but there's a better version on archive.org because i found the youtube version the audio goes out of sync about the last half hour Oh. Uh, the archive.org version does not. So uh, for those of you who found it, congratulations. I hope you enjoyed it. For those who haven't yet, archive.org is the best place to look. Well, if you're having trouble finding it, just drop us a DM on social media and we'll send you a link to the archive. Uh, you know, actually, we might just put it in the show notes below as well, Cam. Make it easy for people. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah so if you want to stop and listen, watch the film and come back to the episode, by all means, if you've seen the Hitchcock version, maybe you've got an edge on what's going to happen here. Yeah, and it was interesting to me. Like the '70s version is easily available to me. Like it's on all the you know streaming services, whereas this '59 one is not. I mean, there's some names in this film that I've recognized, but I think the cast of the '70s version is a bit stronger. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like recognizable um, actors who've appeared in a lot of things we love, like Kenneth Moore, the star of this '59 version. I've seen in a number of things, like A Night to Remember and things like that. But he's not like a big marquee name and he's easily the biggest star in the movie i just i just had a weird flash when you said a night to remember of the song oh what a night but instead of it being like about night as in night time but it's about like a night of the round table and like a weird weird al yankovic remake of that song i don't know why that came to my head or why i even told you wait are you just thinking of tournament of kings when we went in las vegas to the medieval times themed restaurant see now like a ye olde version of oh what a night Hmm. I don't. What song is that? Oh, what a night! Late December, back in '63. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one. Right, right, right. 
No, A Night to Remember was a um, sort of a docudrama about the sinking of the Titanic. Wow, they were those <laughs> contrasting tones there. <laughs> Real <laughs> car crash of tones going on right there. I don't there. think the band were playing that on the Titanic on the way down. <laughs> yeah, we're back, baby. We're back. Well, um, I guess it's time for your letterbox.com synopsis. And it's a weird one. The 39 steps. Hide your kids. Hide your nanny. Hanny's back in town. What? <laughs> Why would you hide your kids from Hanny? I just made that up. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> what the hell? What does that even mean? I mean, we've had stranger letterbox.com synopsis than that. That's true. That's true. Uh, at least, uh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that stays with you when it comes to this film. And they're also really assuming that everyone 25 years later knows Hanny just drop of the hat. Oh, yeah. no problem. Of oh, course, Hanny. that iconic character that I love. Yeah. Look how yeah. uh, Hanny is back. Uh, no, okay, I'll try it again. Serious Scott time. I'll put my trailer voice on. The 39 Steps. The most suspenseful manhunt in history. In London, a diplomat accidentally becomes involved in the death of a British agent who's after a spy ring that covets British military secrets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that pretty much uh, sums up what the movie is. Um, maybe not the tone of the movie, but in terms of a boilerplate, what is this movie about? Well, there it is. I prefer my version. I do too. <laughs> well, um, it's going to be a weird pivot, but uh, I haven't got a funny non sequitur to take us there. But Cam, why do we have a remake of the Hitchcock film? Well, okay, so... Apparently, Alfred Hitchcock had considered remaking The 39 Steps himself. Um, his co-writer on the movie The Wrong Man from 1956, had sort of, uh, Angus MacPhail was the uh, the, co- the writer's name, had pitched like remaking 39 Steps to Hitchcock, suggesting it as sort of a worthy follow-up to The Man Who Knew Too Much remake. I guess like this writer assumed that Hitchcock wanted to remake all of his old classics and was like, hey, you should do redo this one. And so like Hitchcock... He wasn't, like, you know, exploding with enthusiasm about doing it, but he was kind of, like, curious. Um, So he investigated where the film rights were at that point, and uh, he just realized, like, the 1935 film rights were held by the Rank Organization, which was a conglomerate founded by industrialist J. Arthur Rank, began in 1937, and it was the largest film company in the UK. And he just realized, like, they held the rights. This was just going to be kind of a headache to deal with at... You know, Hitchcock is working in America at this point. Um, So it just, I don't even know if he cared that much. I think he was just kind of like, oh, I could investigate that. Oh, the rights are busy. Uh, Whatever. Moving on. He went on and did like Vertigo and North by Northwest. I think Hitchcock did just fine. (laughs) Yeah, I I think he did some successful films after the 1930s. Yeah, just a couple. Just a couple. Um, But the rank organization, like a year or so later... Maybe because Hitchcock expressed interest, were like, huh, we should remake the 39 Steps. And so they recruited director Ralph Thomas. Now, Ralph Thomas had started his career first as a clapper boy in, uh, like, <laughs> way back in, <laughs> in the. Uh, I've been one like of those tw- two sometimes, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> way back in the 20s. <laughs> um, and then he'd become a journalist. 
and he did edit a couple movies in the mid-30s um, before moving into directing later on in like 1949 with the rom-com Once Upon a Dream. And he had like one of those careers where when you look, he's made like, you know, 30 movies. You're not really familiar with many of them. None of the names jump out at all, but a couple of things that I picked out that were of note. He did a 1956 um, comedy called The Iron Petticoat starring Bob Hope. Spy Hard's favorite. Oh, no. This isn't going well. <laughs> um, and I should say it was Bob Hope with Catherine Hepburn. So that's quite a combination. Okay. That, that, that brings yeah. us up at a point. Yep. Bob Hope is definitely the albatross around Hepburn's neck. <laughs> he also made an adaptation in 1958 of A Tale of Two Cities. Um, and then he was behind this franchise I'd never heard of, The Doctor Series. Most of them starred uh, Dirk Bogard, and they were movies, uh, there was like I think like five of them, and there was Doctor in the House, Doctor at Sea, Doctor at Large, Doctor in Love, Doctor in Distress, and Doctor in Trouble. There was a, a sixth one, I think. Uh, that's six, isn't it? Oh, sorry, there, there was a seventh one then. Oh, what was that? Doctor Who. <laughs> Doctor Detroit. <laughs> sure. I uh, that was a really bad joke on my part. So I'm I'm so sorry everyone. Doctor Strange. Um oh, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there was kind of these lightly sort of romantic comedies um about a doctor who got into all Travels sorts of things. In time and space. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um we'll have to uh, do the Doctor series on the Patreon. <laughs> doctor Hards. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And um he it's had not made... what you think. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie was his follow-up to another Dirk Bogard film called The Wind Cannot Read, which is an amazing title. <laughs> what a cuss. <laughs> what a slanderous <laughs> comment against the wind. What have you got against Mother Nature? It's too breezy in here. You can't read. <laughs> Maybe he's talking about the wind from The Happening, where it is basically like, like an entity chasing people down. <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the way to defeat the big bad is to give it a book. Yeah. Um. So, like... You know, as I said, like this guy, this guy's career leading into Thirty Nine Steps. There's he's working with movie stars. He's making things of note. Obviously, the Doctor franchise must have been successful at this point in time. But they aren't things that have um, aged particularly well. When you look at the list, right? You're nothing really jumps off the page. But I did make a lot of notes though. Post this movie, he went on to become something of a spy icon. He directed movies like Hot Enough for June, Deadlier Than the Mail. Some girls do. So he was, uh, you know, pretty um, important in the Euro spy um, world and just had not really done any of those leading up to this. But uh, maybe this is his first step into espionage, really. Wow. We're, we're, we're crowning a new champion that we'll be talking about many more times on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. And he wrapped up basically his career in 1980, but he has a pretty significant filmography and he worked on a lot of these movies with producer betty e box who also produced this movie um and she would go on as well to work on those spy classics that i mentioned okay well th there is some pedigree here um and I, I i do have a new uh a section i'd like to bring up mm. as part of the primer that i'm gonna do from now on okay it's called spy connections and I'm talking about actors in the film. Right. Now, there's three that I could find, although there may be more. Can you tell me which ones have, have been or will be in other major spy films? 
Brenda DeBanzi was in the Man Who Knew Too Much um, mm-hmm. remake. She was um, the the woman who helped in the kidnapping, who had the um, change of conscience. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm gonna guess Kenneth Moore is in something. He may be. Uh, that's bad research on my part. But uh, we've got Faith Brooke. Do you remember what she's from? No. She is from Eye of the Needle. She is the mother who uh, <laughs> tries to tell her daughter about what is expected on the wedding night. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I did not mm-hmm. pick up on that one. No, no. And the other one you've got is a film we haven't tackled yet, but we really should. It's Mr. Sidney James, a comedy legend here in the UK. And he is basically in all of the Carry On films. Oh, okay. So you'll see him in Carry On Spying. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, well, I'm glad you mentioned Carry On because, you know, Ralph Thomas, um, his kind of concept for the movie was to reframe it more as something in the comedy vein, um, mm-hmm. jumping off of Hitchcock. And I saw a lot of reviews actually mentioning it as like Carry On Spying. I saw references to this in regards to this movie. And apparently Ralph Thomas approached Hitchcock and basically wanted his blessing about remaking the 39 steps and hitchcock said if you have the hotspot to do it you go ahead my son and do it you won't do it as well as i did it well that that's a blessing isn't it that's, uh, uh how do you yeah i guess you could, well i guess he was correct yeah spoilers but um i mean this guy was a already sort of an established director and he mm-hmm. went to probably like the king of directing at that point, or one of the kings, surviving He'd kings. He'd be up there, yeah. 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 Uh, got the blessing, but the guy kind of gave him one of those like backhanded compliments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a way to build the guy up. Yeah, no kidding. And like Ralph Thomas was recruited. He was under contract by the rank organization. So I don't even know if it was like a, this is my dream project versus... Under contract, the studio wants you to make it, and you're a bit of a company man because you look at his filmography. You know he's bouncing all over the place, so that may have just been the case. Um, and he was working with a script by a writer named Frank Harvey, um, who was an actor, writer, and playwright um, in the British film industry. And he'd started as a film actor in 1938 on a TV movie called *The Moon in the Yellow River*, and it's listed on IMDb as a TV movie. And I was like, were there TV movies in 1938? Uh, apparently there were. I swear there was only like one channel back then as well. But like TV in like houses, the popularization of that I thought was more the 50s. Now I'm confused. See, actually most of the pictures I ever see of the war is people listening to a radio. So, yeah. I'm not sure this was a TV movie. I don't understand that credit on IMDb. Yeah, Maybe it was like played on TV and people just took it as a TV movie. Maybe it was like something seen in an archive forever that <laughs> just yeah, aired as a TV movie. Yeah, like it had one showing in theaters and then really got picked up as a TV movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's strange. I didn't get that either. Um, but that was kind of his breakthrough. And then he moved into screenwriting um, sort of tangentially first in 1940 when a play he'd wrote called Saloon Bar was uh, adapted to the screen. But then he started doing dialogue work in the film industry and then documentaries. And then in 1948, he wrote the movie My Brother's Keeper and had kind of a string of credits. Again, like Ralph Thomas, nothing that was particularly, you know, jumped off the page to me. Uh, This is his follow up to 1959's um, war drama Breakout. And 
he didn't really work that much longer after this movie. He basically ended his career in the major motion picture industry with the 1963 Peter Sellers comedy Heavens Above and then went and worked in TV for a few years and that was kind of it. But um I think it's like notable because a lot of the movies we talk about on the show have a lot of like say crossover talent from the US or something. This was very much a British film with a British director, British writer, British studio, you know, putting this movie out. And um I don't know if we have that many of these. I mean, I guess the original 39 steps that would be the case as well. Um but yeah. Well, I, I imagine there's a lot of those nineteen uh, thirties and forties films that we're tackling have uh, mm-hmm. are, are quite British. British Agent, for instance, was I mean, it's in the title, but that was very much a British affair. <laughs> was it ever? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I was I was singing Royal Britannia uh, to the rafters every time I I watched that film. So one thing I thought was really interesting about the credits for this movie: Frank Harvey cited as you know the writer of the film. And um, John Buchan is acknowledged for writing the novel, mm-hmm. but there was zero acknowledgement of the original screenplay by Charles Bennett for the 1935 version, which I have to believe nowadays that would have to be credited because the whole Mr. Memory thing, the you know handcuff to the love interest, like so many plot elements of this movie came from that version i think this speaks more to 1950s crediting versus uh you know how how it would be acknowledged now you'd have like a story by Mm -hmm. them screenplay by this guy sometimes you'll also see now based on a screenplay um by you know x i can believe that but yeah I, i i would attribute that to just the way they did it at the time and also well i suppose they were both british productions so there's a good chance that original chap was still around. And actually, now that I think about it, we covered The Magnificent Seven on the Patreon. That was a movie made in 1960, one year later, and they credited Akira Kurosawa for Seven Samurai, that screenplay. So maybe it was just bad form on the part of 39 Steps, 1959. <laughs> or, or it could just be the way the Brits make films and then our rules versus Hollywood, which made The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, like the Writers Guild of America versus, um, I don't know what the guild is called over in Britain. Pass. Sure. Um, yeah, so maybe that was just the case. But uh, in terms of box office, oh, I don't know if this movie really played that much outside of um, the UK. Um, it was almost impossible to track down anything. But I did find a quote that this was the sixth most popular film at the British box office in 1959. What were some other big films that came out in 1959? Well, I can tell you the top three, kind of four for that year. So number one was Ben-Hur. That probably would have been number one in the Mm -hmm. UK. That was a worldwide hit. Uh, Number two was The Shaggy Dog, the Disney movie with Fred McMurray. And number three is, uh, it shifts depending on what chart you look at. It was either Some Like It Hot or the Cary Grant film Operation Petticoat. Now, those two swap places depending on charts, so it's safe to say that they were kind of side-by-side for number three. Okay. Well, those are some pretty big hits. I don't know if if the British film industry necessarily followed Hollywood as close as it does now, but I have to imagine stuff like Ben-Hur definitely charted across the, uh, across the pond. 
And also at number seven around there was a little film called North by Northwest. Yes. So that probably would have been pretty high ranking at the British box office. I wonder if it. I wonder if this beat North by Northwest, and there was like a Hitchcock off. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> There's no way. Like this must North by Northwest must have been like pretty high ranking at the British box office, right? Like <laughs> number needs two or three. Harry Grant, when you've got Kenneth Moore. <laughs> Well, I would say in terms of those uh, those four films I named being on the the top, you know, three or four, mm-hmm. um, Ben Hur's gonna carry well across the seas. I don't think Shaggy Dog is, and I don't think Some Like It Hot probably would have as well either. Like comedies in that era, especially nineteen fifties comedies, they wouldn't have. I don't think put the muscle behind opening internationally as much. Whereas Operation Petticoat also, I don't even know if that one would carry. Other than Cary Grant. Like, I wonder if they would try to sell it off Cary Grant. Well, Some Like It Hot still gets played on TV here. So either that's just like a late addition to, because of just popular culture. Yeah. Or maybe it did do well here. Hmm. Well, we'll have to do a uh, spin-off box office podcast where we delve into the box office origins of Some Like It Hot. Someone call Scott Mendelson. <laughs> and uh, just the final little bit I had on this movie, uh, director Ralph Thomas later down the road um, talked about this movie and said he wasn't particularly fond of it and called it a piece of effrontery that didn't come off. Affrontery? Yeah, so I had to Google that one because I wasn't exactly sure how to... Um, describe that word so it basically means like nerve you know it's kind of like a bold choice to remake um the 39 steps that didn't come off that's basically what he's saying i i fair play fair play to the Mm. guy for you know looking at their own work and going ah swing and a miss yeah 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 so that sort of sums up the behind the scenes on the 39 steps 1959 yeah we're gonna have to add a little asterisk every time 1959 1959 and then we'll do the 70s one and do the same thing but cam we need to sit down and talk about what we think of the sequel, the remake, the re-adaptation of The 39 Steps, and answer the question, what is the connection between the Sheik of Bahrain and the Isle of Helena? <laughs> the the Mr. Memory questions were, were quite good in this one. It didn't have quite the memorable ones that you had in the first version, but uh, yeah, yeah th- that was the one that jumped out at me. But yes, let's talk about it. Now, I was planning on re-watching the original, but I ran out of time. Now, I do have fond memories of the original. It did, of course, make the knock list. Uh, we were both big fans, but it was early days for us, and I think we were perhaps a bit uh, nicer to films in our early days than maybe we would be now. I would say it's one of Hitchcock's best British films. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, I don't think I could fight that. I, I'm more just commenting on how we were in the beginning. But mm. I was a bit hesitant coming into this because unlike, say, Hitchcock redoing Hitchcock like he did with The Man Who Knew Too Much, it's someone else doing a Hitchcock rip. Yeah. Uh, and I wondered how it would track. And immediately from watching this film, I know they were going from a different tone. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, the opening music. Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that the opening like scroll is against steps. Mm. Like how, yeah. how like on the nose does one need to be? The yeah. 39 steps there you go um but i wrote down like it's a pleasant watch i didn't like hate watch this but i felt like really the fundamental thing that makes the 39 steps work is that there's well, two things i should say one there's tension 
and two, there is sort of a camaraderie between the two leads. Right. Uh, a fun sort of connection there. Um, and this doesn't have either of those things. Yeah. There is no chemistry between its leads and the tension, it feels like it like plays lip service to the tension and wants to be more of a comedic film for most of the time. Uh, and so like I, it wasn't a painful sit. It's 90 minutes. I love it when a film's 90 minutes because it means I've only got to watch three hours in total. But um, yeah, I, I, I suppose I left going. I don't know if that was worth it. I, yeah. Um, the first half hour of this movie... I struggled. I was like, oh, I am not liking this. This is like, it, it almost felt like a TV movie mm-hmm. adaptation of the 39 Steps, which it wasn't. It was a theatrical film, but it has not held up the best in terms of film craft when you watch it now. And I'm just like, the first half hour had a lot of goofy musical cues. Kenneth Moore, like, completely threw me. Because, like, Robert Donat in the original has kind of a charm, kind of a worldly quality, and Kenneth Moore does not. <laughs> he looks kind of just like, he looks kind of like a bumbler a lot of the ha- first half of this movie. He's a real and... Bob Hope. <laughs> Get in the barrel. Get in the barrel, <laughs> Kenneth. Um, so, like, I-, I was struggling really hard for the first half hour, going like, I, I don't even know what to make of this. Now, that said, I found the second, you know, the the, the the 60 minutes that preceded that kind of won me over in a way. And I don't love this movie. I think it is more of a curiosity in the, uh, you know, annals of spy films. But I think its charm just kind of won me over, like its lightly comedic approach. I think in terms of adapting the sort of the... Um, the spy espionage kind of mystery plot of the original, it doesn't really work. Um, I found this version actually more confusing for some reason, and also that it just didn't really connect. There was no real tension, as you said, to the mystery. Um, the way they wind up at Mr. Memory at the end is just kind of like, oh, okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Oh, it's resolved. But it found ways, I found, to work in interesting side characters, or just like fun little like moments, and I thought that like Kenneth Moore. Once I got over the uh, <laughs> Herculean feat of trying to compare him to Robert Denat, he could kind of make me laugh a couple times. So it was like as a very breezy, completely forgettable light comedy riff on Hitchcock. Kind of enjoyed it, but that's with a lot of caveats. If you're going to remake a Hitchcock film and you're not Alfred Hitchcock himself, yeah, I almost applaud Ralph Thomas for having a different slant on it. Let's make it comedic. Okay. Sure, I'll give it a watch. And I, from what I can tell, a lot of the adaptations since, including the stage musical, have all had this more of a comedic slant than the tense version that we had in the 30s. That being said, I don't think they've perfected the comedic formula here. There are some moments of laughter. I, I do actually think that the Brenda DeBanzi, like, f- fortune teller section is actually far more fun than the Crofter's wife. <laughs> the Crofter's wife is just tragic and, like, leaves on a real down note where you're like, oh my god, this poor woman. It's the vision of her husband that's always stayed with me. It's like, weary, he's, every day, 10 hours, he's out in those fields crofting, whatever crofters do. Um, whereas, like, 
you've got this fortune teller and i think her husband's like they're meant to be like she's his beard or something i get that vibe from those two that well, i don't know if, does she know she is well like he even says that um what's that chap's name sydney james is per uh, percy like sees to her needs yeah and i'm like oh, well oh my <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> oh husband of mine um yeah, that stuff worked for me and was fun, but they're like distractions from the plot, which is discovering what the 39 steps are and surviving their onslaught, I suppose, and uncovering this mystery. Um, and when the film went back to that, which is what it's supposed to be doing, it just didn't work. There is like kind of this interesting undercurrent to the movie about like how Hanny along the way is helped out by the working class consistently throughout mm-hmm. the movie that happens again and again that they are the people he can rely on versus these you know spies in suits and whatever like kind of the upper class will always turn on him when he goes to you know the the rich dude in the mansion the rich dude turns out to be the one who's revealed to be the the villain um he goes to the police chief the police chief turns on him but when it comes to you know the milkman um you know the fortune teller as you said who runs this kind of rundown hotel establishment the innkeepers at the end like it happens over and over again. Truck drivers as well. They are the ones that will actually look out for his best interests. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that was like highlighted as much in the original. Because like, yeah, the crofter's wife helped out Hanny, but the, the crofter was not <laughs> the biggest Hanny fan. <laughs> the guy Hanny even nicked his jacket at the end. Like no wonder he didn't like the guy. Yeah. Yeah. So like I feel like that wasn't something they were trying to emphasize in the original that I appreciated in this one. That at least it had something it was trying to communicate like it had a bit of an angle and a little bit of a message there but um yeah like i i agree like i thought the um the uh you know the fortune telling um you know motel owner was probably my favorite character in the movie like she was so much mm-hmm. fun i would totally just watch a like spin-off 90 minute movie of her just running her motel um but like i, I noticed like a lot of it was interesting because I looked up some reviews on this one because I was just this movie's a real obscurity over on these shores. So I was just curious what, you know, reviews had said at the time and a lot of them cited her as a total distraction in the movie. Huh. But uh, yeah, honestly, I was more than down for the distraction. Well, like I said, like it, it distracts you from the plot, but the plot's not working. But seeing her there, Nelly, we should call her by her name, good old Nelly, um was was really fun to watch and and see fun to see her interact with Hanny and 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 her husband, but I don't know it just didn't it just didn't grab me as well as it should. And you mentioned it in your review, but the ending is so abrupt. Yeah. Now I went back and checked. I did check the the plot for the Hitchcock version, and it is quite a quick ending. But they do have to kind of deduce where they're going, and they kind of talk amongst themselves and figure out that they have to go back to London. And bloody bloody blah, 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 and and to and find Mister Memory, etc. Whereas this, it just feels like he gets it in a second, and they're off. And that, to me, just feels like, oh, is that the runtime coming up? Right, better better whip this up, get it back to London, and get the film finished. And that bumped me a little bit. Yeah, I had a moment when I was watching it, and it was like them handcuffed together in the hotel room, and I was like looking at the counter on the the player, and I was mm-hmm. like, there's like nine minutes left. They're going to wrap all this up in like nine minutes. Yep. And they do. <laughs> it's very speedy. Um, and to be fair, like the original 39 steps is, I think, like 
82 minutes or something like it definitely moves at a clip yeah but it feels like it's sort of a natural ending versus a quick cut to the ending because i think kenneth moore even just has like this like tossed off line of like oh right the palace the palace and boom they're at mr memory yeah because it's the palace theater yeah. where it's playing but like originally mr memory is touring so they stumble upon mr memory at the theater they go to at the end and that's where they figure it out yeah but and i although i do find it interesting i think before we get into likes usually we were somewhat in sabbatical i think maybe we are in some ways but you seem to be a lot more favorable on this in sort of a cursory way than i am in a in a it's maybe a three-star movie versus a two-and-a-half-star movie kind of thing yeah <laughs> i wouldn't give it the half but yeah okay sure um but let's let's not dwell on that let's talk about some likes and let's talk about the comedy i don't think this story needs comedy as much as maybe little, little light elements that the original has but some of the moments do make me laugh like the stuff in regent's park with nanny and the rattler and like <laughs> the stroller didn't have a baby in it and like giving the rattler to the copper and saying this one's for the chief superintendent or whatever it was like that that all got little like giggles out of me him escaping in the little um what do you call the okay, a group of people on bicycles? I can't remember what they're called. No, I don't know what you call a group of them, but yeah, there's like all the the like kids on bikes. Yeah, yeah, they're doing like a tour of Scotland, and he's just like escaping in that little uniform he's wearing, <laughs> which is absolutely adorable. There's like shorts and there's unbuttoned down t-shirt, but um, stuff like that made me giggle uh, and got little laughs out of me. So that worked. Yeah, well, I think like. It's hard for me to come up with something else I like because I think that's kind of what it was, was the tone of the movie in that regard. And it was scenes like that and how Kenneth Moore would just kind of like riff off them. You know, there was a mm -hmm. lot of like just tossed off lines that kind of made me smile. Even like the tone of the movie is set so, I think, well at the start, even though it took me a while to pick up on what the movie was doing, that there's that shot of the boat you know, in the water mm -hmm. that looks incredibly fake. And then you zoom out and realize it's this um, very elaborate model that this old dude in a captain's hat is, uh, you know, sailing on like a creek um, or like a pond, I should so, say. But like... That's right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so like moments like that, I just think have like a charm to them that mm -hmm. because the movie... Does the movie care about its like spy plot at all? Well, you always say that comedies are like a a clothesline for gags. Yeah. And I'd say this is a comedy. Yeah. I'm not sure it's quite a clothesline for gags. I think there is a plot that runs throughout. But maybe they're not as well connected to each other as they should be. It's like a clothesline. And you could easily make the argument that like Hitchcock uses his movies as like a clothesline for thrills you know mm -hmm. there's the whole MacGuffin element of his films of like you know what is the 39 steps it doesn't really matter it's that the character keeps going through all these you know amazing you know set pieces to get to the end point mm -hmm. and you could say the same thing about you know doing a comedy like this that the plot should just carry you through from set piece to set piece and in a way I think it does a decent job of that where as I'm like jumping from like the bikes to you know him escaping from the train, um, all of these various set pieces, it's doing a good enough job connecting them. It's more like I feel like the, the original Thirty Nine Steps, it had like a punch to it. It had some tension yeah. that when you got to the end, you really felt like you'd been on a journey with that character, even though the movie's only eighty two minutes. Whereas like this felt more like a stroll in the park, like the character 
just kind of felt like he was just kind of haphazardly stumbling from place to place. It didn't feel like someone who really had his wits about him the way that like the Robert Donat character did. Well, I had this in my dislike section, but I think it connects very well. One of my problems with the Kenneth Moore, uh, Richard Hanny character in this film is he just feels like he's above everything. Like, it's just a bit of a jaunt for him. Yeah. He's having a nice day out. He's never really about to be killed. The problem is it reminds me of that character from the Man From U.N.C.L.E. remake film, uh, Henry Cavill. He just feels completely above it. It, it, nothing, everything just sort of brushes off of him. It never really holds him under any tension or any weight on his shoulders. Whereas the the Don A character, the original Han A, much as he had he, he had like quips about what was going on, he kind of like raised his eyebrow from time to time. You, especially when he was in, on the run in handcuffs, you felt like those coppers were right behind him. The helicopter was coming for him. There was a sense of doom, and this film didn't have that. No, and it's like Kenneth Moore, I think is funny throughout so i would put him in my like column and that i liked his Mm -hmm. kind of persona by the end it's it's such a weird conflict for me with this movie because like the things i like there's also issues with it Mm -hmm. so like kenneth moore i liked his persona once i kind of got over the fact this wasn't robert Donat, i was like kind of on board with him but at the same time i can see how it draws away from the tension of the movie like it does kind of hurt it because your lead character doesn't seem I mean, this man never sweats once. This guy is just nope. kind of strolling around, hanging on the sides of trains, and not the most convincing in the action sequences, to be fair. Um, but, like, there's never that sense of that kind of white-knuckle chase to escape from authorities. He seems like he's kind of just got it down. There's a part, maybe this sums up his entire persona in the movie, when he's hiding in really tall grass or wheat or something like that, and he just starts, like, eating a picnic lunch. Well, there's like hunters shooting around and then also the police like going through the, you know, the whole area and he just like has a nap and he like wakes up and he keeps on going. There is no sense of like, oh my God, I am on the run. There's no urgency. No. Yeah. Um, I think another like I think it's worth mentioning because we could, we could fall into dislikes and I want to try and keep it light at this bit. And we've spoken about it briefly already, but I, I do love the Brenda DeBanzi fortune teller character section. Yeah. I think that's a highlight of the film. I do just want to ask a question about the comedy, though, and, and that section is, is part of the comedy. If we hadn't had seen the original, the 1930s version, would we have enjoyed this more? Yeah, I, I would say a little. I don't think we'd be putting this up on the all-timer, you know, of cinema list or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, I don't think we'd be being like, you know, sit down, Godfather. We found the next great uh, classic. But I do think this is... Don't you think this movie would play incredibly well if you saw it on, like, TV in the 1980s? Yeah. Yeah, like a daytime screening. Yes. Like 2 p.m. Oh, not a night. This is not your Friday night. No. This is, like, Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. With a cup of tea and some crumpets. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, I can see it playing well in that regard. It feels like the kind of movie that, well, there's like those movies that just played over and over and over again when I was, you know, young on TV. Things like, say, Overboard with Goldie Hawn, for example. A lot of those kind of 80s comedies. This kind of has a similar breezy vibe where mm-hmm. you can check in at any point and kind of just amuse yourself for a little bit and then check out. So, I think we run into an issue with when you're comparing like something to a Hitchcock movie, 
That is a tough order. And I was doing the mental exercise while I was watching it of actual Hitchcock remakes. How many have worked? And uh, boy, like there's movies that have riffed off Hitchcock. You know, a lot of De Palma movies do. But they're original stories. And he's just taking elements of Hitchcock. I, I love a lot of those films. But when it came to remakes, there's like the Psycho remake, which was a real... I mean, it was an experiment gone awry. Um, we haven't seen the other 39 steps. Um, there was sort of a perfect murder, which was kind of a remake of Dial M for Murder. That wasn't great. Um, I I don't know that there's the Rebecca, um, you know, mm-hmm. they called it an, an adaptation, but it was a pretty close remake of the Hitchcock material as well. Um with you know Army Hammer and Lily James, that wasn't very good. There's something about the Hitchcock magic that like it works to use it as a jumping off point. Yeah, it doesn't really work to try to repeat it. And this movie, I guess, to its somewhat credit, doesn't fully try to recreate the original Thirty Nine Steps. It more wants to turn it into something kind of light and you know kind of silly. Which is why I think we both mentioned the comedy in our likes section, despite it maybe not working with the story of the film, we like the fact that it took a swing. Yeah. Um. What about you? I've already said two likes. What's something you liked? Well, I mean, to me, it was like the tone, and it was just nice to see some of the scenery. Like, this movie was actually shot in Scotland, so they actually made use of their locations. There's a sequence where it's him and uh, Fisher just, like, hiding out on, like, you know, like a river. And, like, that scene looked kind of beautiful. Like, it was actually really cool locations that I found very enjoyable. And it gave it more of a sense of the, the geography of the area. I think the original 39 Steps looks beautiful when you rewatch it. But it's not necessarily being honest to the actual areas they'd be in. So I, I thought in terms of that element, it had... It wasn't, like, quite good-looking enough to be a really successful travelogue. But I still appreciated that they were visiting, you know, locations that looked a little different. Yeah, like uh, one of my other likes, which I, I guess ties into this quite well, is the, the actual train stunt. Right. I think that was well staged, and they actually do shoot some of it on the Firth of the Firth of Fourth Bridge. Like it's actually they went to Scotland and shot it, so that fair play in that sense because it definitely add, adds to that sort of cold, chilly fogginess of Scotland. Yeah, like I, that's something that I think Hitchcock conveyed pretty well, but he was also not using you know, like the Scottish locations. So he's kind of more inventing things. Um, Mm. Whereas here it just felt like this movie isn't as artistically bold as what Hitchcock's trying to do. So I kind of liked its kind of just, you know, light approach to its locations where it was like, let's just convey them as they are and have Kenneth Moore just strolling through them. Rumbling around, making quips. (laughs) Now, I was... (laughs) This is not really a positive, but I was blown away when they said that his character was 35. (laughs) I didn't catch that. No way. 35? Yeah. Wow. I'd literally turned 35 a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, I mean, I look a lot more fresh-faced than that boy. (laughs) I looked up his actual age when they shot this. He was about 10 years older, but... Right. They are trying to convince you that this man is 35. And that's something that, like, <laughs> look, it's kind of like an older man energy, even though he's supposed to be 35 in this movie. Robert Donat, there's the part early on where he invites the woman back to his place, you know, the woman mm-hmm. spy. And, like, you she know, doesn't like that word. <laughs> 
That's right, she doesn't. Um, but like you can tell, Robert Donat has kind of that young kind of like, oh yeah, I'm bringing this woman back. He's he's like cheeky. He's got like a suave nature to him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Whereas like um, when Kenneth Moore brings that character back to his apartment in this movie, <laughs> it's very innocent. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's being very sweet to her. Like he's offering her a cup of tea. I mean, all I really want is for a man to take me home and and make me a kipper sandwich, like uh, old old Donut does. Wasn't he like like frying up fish or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it yeah, was yeah. Kippers or it was like mackerel or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he, like the Robert Donat character was like a young kind of guy who's he knows kind of the city and mm. is someone who's kind of cosmopolitan, a little urbane, whereas like. The character in this movie seems like a school teacher or something. <laughs> it seems like your dad. He does. And he like talks about how he's been away for years. Um, mm-hmm. Something involving political warfare. And I'm like, that sounds like too edgy a job for this man. Well, th- that was actually something that's in my dislikes. And I think we're just sort of drifting over there now. I find this one so difficult because I'm saying like my, gr- you know, my grade is like a two and a half to three star kind of grade so it's like the dislikes have elements that i like the likes have elements i dislike it's not like some movies where it's very clear-cut uh lines yeah this is no my favorite spy it's not a slap in the face um well i i noted down the fact that he has like some training and kind of knows what's going on in the world and that he brings up boomerang which is this secret missile project that doesn't exist in the hitchcock version right um, so like his version of Hane kind of knows what's going on and understands that there is some stakes or at least what the stakes are. Whereas the 39 steps is just more of a mysterious organization that they're trying to escape from in the Hitchcock version. Uh, I just found that addition to be quite baffling because then he's already kind of relaxed. Cause like, Oh, I know what's going on. I was like confounded by the boomerang stuff because it was like, why are you adding on extra elements that are confusing? Yeah. Yeah, because the 39 steps is meant to confuse you. You're not really meant to think about it too much. It's just meant to be this, like, mysterious other that's coming for you. Yeah. But adding in this, like, rocket system that they're trying to sell or buy or steal. I don't know. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? It's Halloween, Scott, and so we're going to celebrate with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Listen to us, we children of the night. What podcasts we make. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. What era was this movie set in? Was it supposed to be set, do you think, in like 1959-ish? I got the impression it was pre-war. That's what I kind of got as well, which 
the original book was set pre World War One, I, I believe, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then when Hitchcock, you know, made it, that movie's made kind of during the, like kind of the slow build up to World War Two. Yeah, and this one I also got a World War Two kind of vibe. The energy and the filmmaking is very like late fifties, mm-hmm. but in terms of yeah, I think what it's trying to get across, it's pre World War Two. Yeah, I just think from the costuming and stuff as well, and what people, and like the nannies and things like that, that, that starts to disappear around the fifties and sixties. Whoa, 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 um, whoa! Are you saying you don't have a nanny? We've been through this. <laughs> I, I, I have, I have a nanny because that's what we call our nans, right. Cam. Uh, and that's my nickname for you is Cammy, of course. <laughs> but um, no, I, I do not, and have never had a proper nanny. <laughs> I'm, I'm broken to hear that. Like, no, no one took me for a stroll around Regent's Park and uh, <laughs> took my rattler off of strangers. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll I'll just say like something I disliked. I've talked about struggling back and forth with the tone and elements like that, but like there was moments of comedy that really fell flat for me, and one of them that really died on the vine was. When he went undercover as the like, um, you know, the school lecturer at the all girls school, yeah, and he's talking about spleenwort, which I don't even know what that is. It's like a root. Oh, okay, and he's just like tossing out just gibberish dialogue, and the crowd is in uproarious laughter, and I'm like, there is nothing this man is saying that is even remotely funny. <laughs> I think they're just giggling because they know something's up. They're just being schoolgirls. I, I, I took a little bit. Of, I did find that kind of funny, like how the teachers were slowly becoming miffed with uh, this this alleged lecture they brought in about spleenwort, but it turns out it wasn't the right person. But the way it works in the original is, I think, far better. Because in the original, Hanny finds the lady on the train. And then goes to like a workers' union meeting, yeah, and makes some sort of uproarious speech. But because you can kind of bluff your way through that speech, like workers' rights, he saw the signs on the wall and figured it out. Whereas Spleenwort, you wouldn't have any idea. So it just turns into like a stand-up act, a very unfunny stand-up act. And like, yeah, the reason the first one works is because he has to give that speech to like stay safe. Like, there's mm-hmm. genuine tension to him having to give that speech. Whereas in this movie. Um, he's just kind of like doing. What's the deal <laughs> with spleen warts? They're not spleens, and they're not warts. <laughs> what is wayside in the woods <laughs> in August? <laughs> yeah, so that yeah, that did bump on me too. Yeah. Um, I I just we haven't really spoken about this character apart from my mention at the start. And that is Fisher. We just sort of briefly mentioned her because she is the the other lead of this film, the love interest of the film, and the lady who survives to the end. Um, I don't know who Tana Elg is. I'm sure I'll find her again in another film down the road. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm looking at her filmography. Yeah, it's pretty sparse. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe, but I don't. I don't think so. I have apparently seen her. In the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Hercules in New York, a.k.a. Hercules Goes Bananas, where she played Nemesis, I guess. There's a second Hercules film? Oh, no. This was, like, in the late... is like, at the tail end of the 60s. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they were trying to make him a star because he was a bodybuilder at that point. Mm-hmm. And they put him in this, like, very cheap Hercules movie that's, like, 
you know, you're a fan of the room. Hercules uh, goes bananas slash Hercules in New York is mm, pretty on par with something like the room. And it wow. was a complete disaster. And Arnold didn't really act for a number of years. Um, oh, so that sort of put so, him off for a while, basically. For a little bit, yeah. And he's dubbed over in the movie. And they also change his name to Arnold Strong. <laughs> Arnold Strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, maybe I'll never see Tana Elg again. That probably leads in well with the fact that I didn't enjoy her performance, I have to say. I, there's no chemistry between the two of them. She has a moment of delicacy, I think, when she figures out that he's not a bad guy and there's like little bits about the tights. It's quite cute and when she slips off the handcuff. It's kind of nice. But she's meant to be this like antagonist in a way to your lead, but like like a fiery chemistry between the two of them. It's like tit for tat. And they're meant to sort of bounce off one another. Whereas she's just saying ouch and no for a very good long time in the film. And it, it does grate you after a while. This element doesn't work at all. And it's something we, I think, we really loved the original 39 Steps. But it was something we also highlighted Clearly. as an issue with that film. Which is like the female lead is introduced in a scene where he just like aggressively like kisses her as a cover on a train. Mm-hmm. And then she disappears from the movie and doesn't show up till like the last like half hour or so. And that was an issue with the first film. But I think, you know, the two characters had a lot more chemistry in that one. And mm-hmm. they were also just, they felt like good sparring partners. You know, Robert Denat was like kind of a young guy. She was like, I, I can't remember the actress's name, but like she was also, you know, seemed pretty young and fiery. And it just made like a good combination. Whereas um, it was Madeline Carroll. Yeah, Madeline Carroll. Yeah. Um, so like they just made like for a, a really good combination of characters. Whereas here, he's kind of as we've said, like your dad on the run. Um, and she seems like just very sweet. Like she seems mm. like very sweet natured. You know, she's like a um, you know, a teacher at the school. Um, seems pretty mild mannered, and like. When you put the two of them together, she's annoyed, but it's not that like kind of crackling chemistry. And the fact that I'm supposed to buy that there's like a love story happening over the span of like 20 minutes, it's a real tough sell. And the, and the thing with having this sort of 35 slash 45 <laughs> year old man is that he's he's abducting a 20-ish year old girl in this film. Yeah. And the the Madeline Carroll character was the same age, but the uh, but the Robert Donay character was also a lot younger. Whereas this feels like your dad taking his secretary for a, for a spin. Yeah, because I believe she was about twenty eight, twenty nine when they shot this movie. Yeah, and I yeah, the chemistry just isn't there. I think that's the simple way to sum it up: is the chemistry wasn't there. They didn't have that sort of fiery spark between them, especially when they're on the run, because they're meant to have this sort of quips and sort of flirty exchanges that are loaded. But there's none of that here. It's very much shutting him down uh, until she magically falls in love with him. And I think the issue is, and I don't really blame the actress for this, when you have this little screen time in the movie, just in terms of the, the, you know, the screenplay, the structure of the 39 steps, you have minimal time. And if you're being directed um, to kind of and being written with a performance and a character that's like 
kind of passive, kind of sweet, you know, and then just has the kind of the, the lovey-dovey pivot. Um, and that all happens in like 20 minutes. There's only so much you can do. Like, you would hope that if they're looking at this, they go, okay, we need her to have some real sparks and to have a little more fire so that it's something funny for him to at least bounce off if you are making a comedy. Because it's not really fun watching him kind of like bumble around and make jokes at like this this kind of this doe-eyed woman. Like that's not funny. Like it's more nope. funny if she's like, you know, fire and brimstone and he's having to kind of react off of that. That could be actually funny. Yeah, and I and that I think that's probably the problem with the comedy because it's very broad. Um and so that that doesn't really land for a lot of people, specifically us. So maybe this maybe their chemistry was better a long time ago but it just doesn't land now. And it's interesting if you you know read a synopsis on the original novel, there isn't this whole like love interest subplot. There's no like handcuffed at a hotel um, material in the book. So like they're just taking that from the Hitchcock movie. And I think like if you were to remake a Hitchcock film like 39 Steps, you're not going to probably beat him in the style department. But I think you could beat him in like some of the plot structure stuff of the 30, uh, 39 Steps original. And that would be, I think, the handling of the female lead. And I think this movie actually does a worse job. That one also has the same issue, but it it just has the chemistry. And so it works. Whereas I think if you... You can always get past it. Yeah, you can yeah, get past that. I would have paired them up maybe earlier, maybe worked her into the movie earlier. Like, you can kind of do whatever you want. And to just replicate that did not work here. I mean, far be it from me to try and tackle a Hitchcock and try and lift that up. So I'm not going to even really try. But I, I know we said it originally, and it still stays true here. There is not enough time to get the chemistry between the two of them. But it, it works better in the original. Yeah. Um, in terms of other dislikes, um, I, I, I think I've actually mentioned them all. The, the lack of tension, I think, really stands out for me in this film. There's no chemistry, as I said. The whole him knowing about weapons was... A strange choice, um, and the whole like Hannah is assuming above it all, right? It, it felt like it was coming at the work differently, which I appreciate a different angle on it. Something what if you're going to redo a classic, try and do it differently, see what comes up. But whatever you do differently, try and make it work because this just doesn't work. And one element I thought really didn't work was um, Barry Jones as Professor uh, Logan, the the main villain who has the, you know, iconic finger reveal in the original. He has it again here. And that's something that, uh, you know, Cloak and Dagger, a Hitchcock riff. Again, I think you can make Hitchcock riffs that really work. Whereas I think when you remake them, it's really difficult. But, like, they have that character here. And just, like, what a non-entity. Like, he wasn't the most dynamic of Hitchcock villains in the original. But he's even less so here. The only, only moment of him that like raised my pulse was when he did the like the the bail off of the uh balcony oh, man. at Mr. Memory. I was like, is that old man okay? Because like you suddenly see this like, you know, somewhat older looking gentleman just take this like <laughs> flying leap off of a balcony. It looks crazy. He's he's quite portly. Uh you know, <laughs> he's lived a, a, a full and rich life, let's say that. And this man leaps off of the box in the Palace Theatre, and, and he makes the stage and keeps running too. I have to imagine that's a stunt man in a wig, but it looked good. The actor was about sixty-five or sixty-six when they shot this, so I would hope it was a stunt man. <laughs> yeah, 
it, I don't want to look at his IMDb. You find out he like died a week later from like I don't know breaking his knees. <laughs> when he did that though, like it was a pretty. I'm sure it was a stunt man, but it was a pretty seamless look, like looking scene. Yeah. So I was like, oh my god, it's <laughs> Barry Jones. I did okay? not expect it. No. Yeah, because he just throws himself off. That that got like a whoa out of me there. Yeah. But you you have brought up something that we haven't really spoken about, and that is the return of Mister Memory. Which is one of our favorite moments in the original 39 Steps. Um, again, a complete uh, you know, made-up thing from the original book. But uh, it was fun seeing him again. I, I don't know if he got as fun questions as I mentioned earlier. But I did have a question for you, Cam, in regards to Mr. Memory. And this is not a, a knowledge question, trust me. I'm not, I don't think you're Mr. Memory. But do you think someone today could exist like Mr. Memory? No. No, I don't. Yeah. It's just too much knowledge now. And also, like, they would say a, a true fact, and someone would be like, that's wrong! That's wrong! <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, just shut this go. down. I can't I can't sit here in this crowd <laughs> anymore. I, I hadn't thought about the fake, fake news angle, but that's that's a, that's a very fair point to make. I, I just think there's, like, too much out there, and people could just Google it and be like, I'll, I'll think you'll find it's blah blah blah, not blah blah blah. Yeah, uh, and yeah, why is that an attraction anymore? I mean, I don't really know why it was an attraction back then. Really, like I don't know that I would be that interested in it. But if I were, uh, who knows? I don't know what entertainment options were like in the. 19- There's no TV. Yeah, like what do you have? Yeah, exactly. What you got you the have? radio, right? Yeah. Although apparently TV did exist if the writer was appearing on TV <laughs> movies in 1938. <laughs> This is this is true. I do have one further up follow up question for you, for Mister Memory. Yeah. If you were back in the time of Mister Memory, what question would you ask him to try and stump him? Oh my God! What's the um the famous question from um Monty Python and the Holy Grail about the sparrow? That's that's the one I would ask, and I would have done the research in advance. I was thinking about the Monty Python question too, uh, and I had to look it up for you, Cam. It is, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? <laughs> there you go. That would be a great question. And I think it would actually stop the show because he would not have an answer. I, I, I mean, looking at the questions Monty Python does as well, like the what is your quest uh, and what is your favorite color? Like, uh, yeah, maybe I'll do that just for jokes. But yeah, I think your swallow question would, would stump everyone. You would become the true Mr. Memory, even though you have no, no powers. It's a Highlander thing, isn't it? When you defeat Mr. Memory, you become Mr. Memory. There could be only one. I have to, like, throw on the jacket and then get up on the stage. And then I'm, like, quickly dethroned within the first question. <laughs> Sean Connery starts to walk out to tell you what's going on. and just turns around and leaves again. He's like, ah, not this man. Someone's like, do you validate parking? I'm like, uh. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I mean... Uh... We we played a game where you had to memorize things on holiday, and you failed that uh, tremendously. So uh, your memory isn't great. Well, my memory is great for certain things. Um, okay, it, it's entirely dependent. So right. film trivia you have down to yes. be fair. Like someone asked you, like who won the best picture Oscar in nineteen seventy eight? That was Annie Hall. Yeah. I'm not going to Google it, folks. I'm going to trust that he's right, and you can let us know if he's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So yeah, that's that's pretty quick off the draw. Like I wouldn't have known that. Yeah. So it's a kudos to you, Cam, the true Mister Film memory. That's right. That's right. Uh, did you have any final notes on the film, Cam? 
I had, I guess, three things I wanted to cite. They're all kind of quirky and kind of weird. Um, on on brand, go for it. I'll, I'll get the uncomfortable one out of the way. Uh, we have um, Kenneth Moore doing impressions of indigenous people at one point. Uh, that was kind of awkward, um, where he does it to the uh, psychic woman. I don't know why he was doing that. It was it was a real out of left field. Sure. Another question off of her, though, a more fun question. She references that she was in prison for like four years for witchcraft. Like what? So I had a little look. There was the Witchcraft Act of 1735, and it was repealed in 1951. Oh my god, that late? Yeah. Now, when I say it was repealed, it was actually replaced with the Fraudulent Mediums Act of 1951, which is still in some way used today. So... But that's more for, like, spiritual healers and things like that sort of mumbo-jumbo. What would Mrs. Lumsden have been thrown in prison for? Like, she seems to just be like a psychic who, you know, reads a crystal ball. Was she conning people? Because I can understand that, but I didn't really get that impression from the movie. Well, I think they're using a little bit of, like, film magic and embellishing somewhat. But, basically, the Witchcraft Act made it a crime for a person to claim that any human being had any magical power or was guilty of practicing witchcraft. And it had a maximum of a one-year imprisonment. So four years was quite the, uh, <laughs> make an example. Unless you did it four times. Unless you did it four times, then you could maybe say that was why. Okay. Boy, that uh, life was yeah. hard back then. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think if we're getting serious for a second, I think it has some sort of basis in sort of Christian values and things like that when they used to have more of a sway on how law was written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. And like, yeah. she is someone who operates kind of on the periphery of society. You know, running the uh, the gallows motor mart. Um, you know that, uh, like, it does seem like it seems like this little world that he stumbled into that is away from the norms of society. I, weirdly, that sort of uh, seance center or whatever you want to call it um, has kind of more of like a '50s '60s vibe to it, like a bit like psychedelia almost. Um, it's actually weird to see something like that in the 19th, I guess, 30s when this is set. Um, I mean, I guess I could kind of parallel it, though, a little bit with, like, the psychic scene in Ministry of Fear, which was wartime. Sure. So, yeah. I guess it kind of checks out, but I agree. Well, a lot of the movie looks like the 50s to me. Yes, like, the costuming is 1940s, but, like, it looked like a 1950s movie to me very often. But she was a bit kooky, though. Like, she wouldn't let him in if he was a certain star sign, had certain hair color. Yeah. Like, uh, using all sorts of terms. I don't know if they're racist or not, so I'm not going to say them on this podcast. But uh, I, I'm not a Sagittarius, fortunately, so I think she would have let me in. Right. I'm Scorpio, so I would have been okay as well. Yeah. Virgos and Scorpios. I don't know how they go hand in hand. It's all nonsense <laughs> to me. And just my last note, there's the milkman who helps him out earlier in the movie. Hmm. There's a bizarre moment where the milkman breaks the fourth wall and stares at the camera that I was like, what was that? And yes, I mean, I found most of the accents in this movie I could understand. His was the toughest because whatever. Really? Yes. Whatever line he said when he stared at the camera, I rewound it five times and I was like, I got nothing. Well, I was going to save this line, but I'll say it now. Hannah says he had to slip in to look at her etchings. 
And then the guy says, that's what got me caught too. And he goes, was it the same thing? He goes, oh, no, that was for, I, I slipped in to see her budgerigar. What? That's a type of bird. <laughs> yeah, that would have flown way over my head. I've never heard that term. Was that a was that a bird pun? Like I know what a budge I know what a budgie <laughs> is, but a budgery car? I, gar. gar. I think it is. I, I I it's something it's a word that's in my head. I don't think I've ever seen one, but like I, I I know it to be like a pet you would have. Okay. I wonder if we just shortened it to budgie. That might make sense. But yeah, like that line, I listened to it multiple times. I was like, mm, nope, nope, nothing doing." Uh, well, I can solve this for you. The budgerigar uh, is also commonly known as a parakeet. Oh, wow. Okay. But the budgerigar is, is its name. Well, you learn something new every day. There you go. Well, we, 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 The first 100, we had uh, horse hearts. Maybe now it's bird hearts. <laughs> I mean, I think it became bird hearts as soon as we started talking about Condor Man, but yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, actually, to be fair, that makes way more sense. Um, that was really all of the notes I had left, except for a, a note just popped out of my page. There's a small section where they're driving a car whilst they're handcuffed, and it gave me uh, some Wylin and James Bond vibes. Mm-hmm. Yep, on the motorcycle because she had to sit behind him and sort of wrap his arm around with the handcuff. I'm doing the motion like I'm on a video podcast. This is all audio, so you can't see any of this. But yes, uh, I, I might put a photo of those two next to each other online. It was it was a it was fun for a second. That became a bit of a trend of like characters being handcuffed together, um, especially characters who had kind of clashing personalities. I think of the Defiant ones with Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis. Um, but yeah, like I think it's a gimmick that can work really well, and it it works not so great here, but it works really well in the original. Yeah, I have to agree. But uh, I, I think that wraps us up for our notes. You know, we've had budgerigars, we've had hannies, and we've had nannies. But let's talk about knock lists. Yeah. Cam, uh, the 39 Steps from the 30s has made a knock list. Is its successor joining it? No, no. I mean, I think when I was saying that this is the type of movie that would play well at like 3 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon... Tough to make the knock list when that's the uh, criteria that depend on you being uh, at your most successful. But like, you know, it's kind of a cute movie. It's kind of fun to sit through. But like, I can't imagine myself ever going back and rewatching this version of the 39 Steps. I can't imagine telling anyone this is the version they should watch first. And I also have a hard time imagining myself if someone was like, I loved the Hitchcock 39 Steps. I can't imagine myself being like, you really need to watch the 1959 remake. It would be more like, if you're really bored, check out the 1959 one because it's kind of silly. That would be my kind of response to that. Yeah, I I, I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, That's one note down to me now. I mean, I would, I'm the same. It's obvious it was a no for me because I said it was less than your vote. So if yours is a no, mine certainly must be a no. But I... I'm not even going to go out on a limb and say I would recommend this if someone was bored. I'm going to wait and say I want to watch the 70s version uh, and then I'll I'll give you where I stand on the uh, the 339 steps. I think there's only three. Maybe there's four. Um, well, Benedict Cumberbatch is doing a TV adaptation, um, I believe, of the 39 steps. Uh, I don't know if it's still going, but it was in the uh, in the planning stages. So it seems like 
we could have more versions of this story. And I think there was also like a, a, a TV movie version as well, which we probably won't cover. But I, I did have a question for you. Now that we've watched the original and we've watched this um, kind of comedic take on the material, does it make you more or less excited to watch the 70s version? Hmm, that's a solid question. I think it makes me more excited to watch it because I've seen the highs, and I wouldn't say the lows, uh, but I've seen a version I didn't enjoy. Right. And it's made me appreciate what I enjoyed about the original. So when I go to watch the 70s version, I can be looking for certain elements to find what I'm looking for. Maybe it is the ultimate version for me. Mm, maybe. Time will tell. How do you feel? I think I'm more interested now to be the completist, the one that has seen like mm. the various versions of um, the 39 Steps. And I'm also... I think really curious, and I'm not going to do the research in advance because I'd prefer to be surprised, but I'm really curious to see if it is a close adaptation of the Hitchcock version of the story versus the novel. That is something I'm really looking forward to finding out. Yeah, that'll be interesting. See if some it takes some elements from the novel. Maybe I'll read the novel in the meantime because we're not going to tackle this other film for a couple of years, I think, now. Right. Um. Gives me plenty of time to get through it after I finish all the Destroyer novels. <laughs> um, but there you go, folks. Two knows the 1950s version of the 39 Steps is not making the knock list, but the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Cameron, Cami, the question goes to you, sir. What's up next week? Yes, we are going back in time to 1941 to tackle the Humphrey Bogart spy thriller, all through the night. Is that another night joke? No. Uh, are we taking it back to the start of this episode with that song? Yeah. Oh, oh, what a night. Hopefully I'll be saying that by the end of the film. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it for some reason, is to check out All Through the Night with Humphrey Bogart from 1941 and join us next week if you like what you hear on the show please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, I would like you girls to take away with you this one splendid thought. Whatever you do, don't fall by the wayside, but more important still, keep out of the woods.